Would you please open your Bibles to John chapter 17? John chapter 17, the Gospel of John. You're going to read a few verses here. Verse 1 and 2, chapter 17 of John. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Please skip to number, verse number 6. It says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Now verse 9. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. Please be seated. Father, we... Once again, we cry out to you. We pray a lot here because we know that we need you a lot. Help the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Help me, O oh Lord. Help all of us to be faithful servants. Save those who are in great need of salvation. Comfort those who need comfort. Exhort those who need to be exhorted. And sanctify your church for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I thought it would be good for us to review what we have seen so far in this series. Since it has been almost more than a month, I think, the last time I preached on this series. And with more people, new people coming to church, I thought it would be good for us to just take a pause and review what we have seen so far in this series, what, what we mean as a church to be Reformed Baptist. And as I was thinking, remember the first sermon, we talk about tradition, the traditions that we hold. And one of my favorite musical, music, musical drama is The Fiddler on the Roof. And those who know The Fiddler on the Roof know Tavia, and you know how his life can be summarized with one word. And what is the word? Tadrishan. Yes. And the musical drama goes on to show how Tevia's family falls apart. Remember, his daughters, Mary, men, were not in good standing with the traditions that they have. And there are many lessons in the musical, but I think for us Christians... The greatest lesson is that traditions that are not grounded, founded in the Scriptures, are certainly as shake as a fiddler on the roof, and later or sooner will come down and crash. We cannot live and do things and believe things just because they are traditions. We must know where these traditions are coming from and make sure that they are grounded in the Scriptures. We have traditions. Our name carry traditions. Reform, Baptist. They're good traditions. Since the beginning of the church, we have different types of traditions. But we've got to make sure that our traditions are grounded, coming out of the Scriptures. Because if you think about every single church and every denomination is following a type of tradition. The Methodists have the tradition of the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Baptists, the Anglicans. We all are following a type of tradition. The question is, is that biblical? Is it flowing from the teachings of the Scriptures? And we begin this series with the question, why would we study what we are? Why would we study the title, the, the name of our church? Remember that the name of a church can tell a lot about a church. 
Because the name is like a label of, that welcomes you and gives you a glimpse of what they hold you. At least should be. Should be. Things have been changing a lot. And the name of our church encapsulates what we believe. The major doctrines that we hold together. And the question is, why are we studying that? Why, why would we study, why would we take time to study what we believe? And the main core doctrines of this church. And I think the answer is simple. We can think about how the object of God's love, the triune God's love, is the church. God the Father loves the church so much that He gave whom? His Son to die for the church. The Son loves the church so much that He not only gave His life, but He gave the Holy Spirit to His church. And we are to follow Christ and love the church just like He loves. And part of loving the church is treasuring the unity of the church. You cannot say that you love the church and do not care about the unity of the church. The New Testament is clear. Passages after passages, how Jesus died to create the unity of the church. And we are commanded not to create unity, but to preserve the unity in the chains of the Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians. And key to preserve the unity of the church is to have a unity of doctrine. We all together here must hold to a body of teachings that will hold us together. Contrary to our modern concept that doctrine divides, so many churches, they claim that doctrine divides. Why we talk about doctrine? Doctrine divides. We believe that the Bible is very clear that doctrine actually unites. The local church is not a an invention of man, it's a creation of God. Christ loves the local church, and we ought to love the church and strive to preserve the unit that he has given us. And as we are thinking about the name of our church, Salem Reformed Baptist, we can see that there are some traditions there with the title Reform, the title Baptist. And the question is, are these traditions as shaky as a fiddler on the roof, or are these traditions the solid path coming from the Scriptures? In Jeremiah 6, we saw that before. In Jeremiah 6, the Lord says, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient, the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. We love new roads. Amen? We love new paved roads. I was in Brazil a few weeks ago, and I miss these streets that we have here. But in ancient times, the best roads were the old roads. Why? Because you knew that it was going to lead you to the right place. You knew that a lot of people had tread upon that path. And that's what the Lord is saying. You go back to the old, the old, the old, old story. Not the new inventions. And I would say that as we think about what we believe, the name of our church, we see that we are not creating anything new. It's the old old story. It's nothing new. Paul says to the Philippians, complete my joy by being, he tells how, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord and one mind. And I pray that we as a church will complete not only Paul's joy, because Paul's joy is a reflection of Christ's joy. We have unity of doctrine in this church. Knowing all we believe and holding together that we, are, we don't have something new, but we all here hold to the old paths. That takes us all the way back. I think about, can you imagine trying to keep the unity in a local church when the members disagree with one another whether women should be pastors? 
where the members disagree to the doctrine of the Trinity, as to Darwinism, Arminianism, or Calvinism. Disagreement between pedo-baptists and credo-baptists. About church membership. You have chaos, then you don't have a church. When the members disagree on the basic doctrines that we hold them together, you're going to have a very ugly gathering of people. So, as we go through this series, as we go through this series, I hope that you can see that we are tracing our name, our doctrines, our history, not only to our present history of Baptists or past with the Reformers, but that we are going all the way back to Moses, to the ancient paths. Amen? So first of all, we look at what it means to be Reformed. What makes us Reformed? We are called Salem Reformed Baptists, and we are walking first through the reform. What do we mean by being Reformed? And why keep that in the name of the church? I believe that we hold to Jesus' sovereignty over history and how beautiful was what he accomplished during the Reformation, during those dark days, what he brought to light through his people and his church. We believe that a great and large part of the Reformed tradition is biblical, and that's why we want to make sure what we mean by being Reformed. We want our children and others to know that we are deeply thankful for what the Sovereign Lord accomplished during the days of the Reformation. Think about, you have Bibles in your hands. You have multiple Bibles in your home. You have hymnals. You have churches to go. That's the fruit of the Lord's work through the Reformation. Amen? And we saw, first we saw the the mark, what can mark, or how can you describe, how can you summarize, summarize the Reformation, and was the five solas of the Reformation. Those are the summary of the main doctrines that the Reformers were kind of removing from the dust and the dirt of tradition from the Roman Catholic Church. Remember that the sola, what does it mean, sola? Only, only. And then you have the five solas that will be the, the main drumbeat that kept the reformers marching together. Matthew Barrett, he writes, Historians and theologians alike have long recognized that at the heart of the 16th century Protestant Reformation were five declarations or solas that distinguished the movement from other expressions of the Christian faith. In one sense, we are reformed because we joyfully embrace these five solas. Remember, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, soli del gloria. The solas of the Reformation, we embrace them and they kind of embrace us together as the main teachings. So why are we reformed? Because we hold to Sola Scriptura, the centrality of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the central, take the central spotlight in our church. Everything that we do, we have the Bible as our guide. The Word of God alone controls, governs, and gives life to this church. We are formed, reformed, and sanctified by the Scriptures alone in the hands of the Spirit alone. And we do not want new, new revelations or new techniques. We want the old paths. Sola Scriptura. We are reformed because we hold to the centrality of the Bible in this church. Not only that, but we hold to Solus Christus. Christ alone. We believe and declare that Christ alone is sufficient to bring us back to the presence of God. Amen? Christ alone can forgive sins. Christ alone is what gives the Scriptures coherence. So let us fix our eyes on Christ. We join our voices with Peter, and we declare that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus alone is our perfect high priest, prophet, and king. And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus alone. Amen? So we are reformed because we hold to the sola scriptura, solus Christus. Not only that, but sola fide. Faith alone. Believe that faith alone in Christ alone is God's instrument to bring man into a place and position of justification, no longer under condemnation. Faith alone. That's God's means, not works, but faith alone. And faith alone will be a working faith. We believe and proclaim the offensive doctrine of grace alone, sola gratia. Everyone deserves hell. And God, in His sovereign grace, has chosen some to be His instrument of salvation, vessels of mercy. Amen? And then... Lastly, soli del gloria. We are reformed because we believe that God alone must receive the glory. In all that we do, in all that we say, glory be to God alone. Amen? And we also mentioned Semper Reformanda, that we believe we are reformed because we believe that the church must be in a constant need of being reformed by the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures. We never stagnate and think that we have arrived we know that we have an enemy. He's furious because his days are short. So we must keep pressing and always being reformed by the Word of God. So those are the solas that we saw. But they're not only the solas. We saw that the solas, they're complemented by the... So we have five solas, and these five solas are complemented by the five points of the doctrines of grace. So what makes us reform? The five solas plus the five points of the doctrine of grace that expands and helps us understand better these five solas. So, for example, we declare to treasure sola gratia, grace alone. But what does it mean, grace alone? We declare to believe in solus Christus, Christ alone can save. But what does it mean? We believe in soli del gloria, but what does it mean, salvation, that God alone receives the glory? And these five points, they will help us. These five points, they are easily understood by the acronym TULIP. We have the TULIP, and the acronym stands for Total Depravity, Unconditional Election, Limited Atonement, Irresistible Grace, and the Perseverance of the Saints. So that's what we are working through as we are getting to know, in, I think in a deeper way, what we are and what we believe as Reformed. These five points, you can see that they have chains connecting to one to the other because they are inseparable. You cannot break this chain here. They are inseparable, they are unbreakable by reason and by the chain of the Trinity. And we saw the first point of these five points of the doctrines of grace that helps us understand better the five solas is the first one was total depravity. Remember, we study what does it mean, total depravity? We saw what it doesn't mean. So just a review. If you want to know more, you've got to go and listen to that sermons. We had sermons. I'm trying to summarize in five minutes, maybe. Okay? The total depravity is the teaching that the sin that was passed through from Adam to humanity has completely and totally affected, infected, and defected humanity. There is no part of our humanity that has not been affected by sin. That's what the doctrine of total depravity teaches. The internal corruption of Adam's sin's nature has been imputed to the totality of every part of every person from the moment of conception. So the word total, think about total. Remember, it doesn't mean that we are as corrupt as we could be. We can always get more evil. <laughs> Amen? But it means that the totality, the totality of who we are has been infected by sin, contaminated by sin. We saw in Romans chapter 3 how Paul shows that total depravity first means the totality of humanity. The totality of humanity. Paul says in Romans 3, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, total, totality, all, both Jews and Greeks, and that's a way of putting the whole humanity. Jews and Greeks are under sin. 
as it's written, no one is righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside together. They all have become worthless. Brothers and sisters, Paul is saying that there is no one, either in Africa, in America, that's born free from the contamination of sin. From the cannibals in those islands, in Papua New Guinea, wherever you go and you find cannibals, to the old lady crossing the street, to the baby in your womb, everybody has been infected with sin. Not because we are in America that suddenly people are born without sin. Everybody, total depravity. Everybody's born contaminated with sin. And Paul goes on to say, that's not only that, but also the totality of our composition. So Paul says, no one is righteous, no one understands, mind. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, that's hands. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are destruction and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their what, eyes. From head to toe, man is contaminated with sin. From head to toe, affected by sin. And that's, what, that's why Paul is telling the, the, the church in Rome, because man is in this condition, he longs to preach the gospel because the gospel is the only solution, is the power of God to save Jews and Greeks. So please support me, Paul is saying. Support my missions endeavor to preach the gospel because all mankind need to hear the gospel. So you see how Paul puts the whole composition of men being affected by sin. So we see the, the whole idea of free will. That's a myth. There is no free will. People think that the will of man is this weird thing that's floating out there that has not been contaminated by sin. No, there is no free will. The will of man is affected and contaminated by sin. No one seeks for God, Paul says. No such thing as free will. And because the will of man is not free, but enslaved to sin, men will never choose to come to Jesus on their own impulse and desire. Actually, you're hiding from God. They're running away from Him. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus declares that the heart of every sinner, unregenerated, is a well of all sorts of evil. In John chapter 6, remember they're trying to make Jesus an earthly king. They don't know the Jesus that they're choosing. And you see how the true Jesus can only be chosen by the chosen by the Father. So he says, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can, uh, no one has the power. Remember the word can there means power, ability. No man has ability, power to come to me. Unless the Father drags that person through the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's the doctrine of total depravity. And that's the black backdrop that will shine the glory of God. Amen? You have no good news if man is in a good position. The good news is good news because man is completely lost. So total depravity begs and necessitates the next point, that is unconditional election. Unless God does something in us and for us, we are completely lost and hopeless. We need a Savior. To save us. And the Bible is clear that the triune God is that Savior. So as we were singing here earlier, I was blinded by my sin. I had no ears to hear a voice. Did not know your love within. Had no taste for heaven's joy. Total depravity. Then your spirit gave me life. A God who saves. That's the good news. You have a God who saves. And the first thing that God does for us is choosing us. The first thing that God does for us in salvation is to choose some to be saved. And that's why you call unconditional election. The total depravity teaches us that there is no condition in us. It's unconditional election. There is no condition prior to God love us. There is no, just our sins. Unconditional is not based on any human achievement. In the case that the decision is made apart from anything good that might be foreseen in the sinful creature. 
Unconditional election means the election was not determined by or conditioned upon anything that man would do, but resulted entirely from God's self-determined purpose. Some of you have heard that the word for to elect, there to choose, is the same word that uh, was used for David choosing the rocks when he's going to... It's just sovereign choice. David is sovereignly choosing whatever rocks he's going to use. But I think that metaphor, and though the word is the same and shows the sovereignty of the one choosing, I think there is a, a big difference between the rocks and us, because at least David is looking for good rocks that he will use. When God looks at us, he doesn't see, any, he doesn't see anything good. It's not like he's looking at, oh, this stone is going to be good, or, oh, Sam, Sam, Sam might be useful here. No. Paul says, in Romans 9, 16, that God's election depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Same said in 2 Timothy 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of man, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So that's what it means, unconditional. It was not man's will. Some people say, oh, God chose those who chose Him. Right? Have you ever, have you ever heard that? That's what I used to believe. Yeah, God chose those who chose Him. That's unbiblical. It's completely unbiblical. No man chooses God. No man can come to Him. God's gracious and unconditional choice both precedes and produces man's choice of Him. Amen? And Jesus says, so for example, Jesus says in, in, in John 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you. How can we argue with that? Or 15, 19, If you were out of the, of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, humanity can be divided in two parts. Those who belong to the world and those chosen out of the world. So many people get scandalized by Malachi and then how Paul quotes Malachi in Romans chapter 9. That Jacob I love, but Esau I, I hated. Right? So many people get scandalized. How, God, how, how can God hate Esau? How can God hate anybody? God is love. And suddenly forget that God's holy and righteous. And the question is not how can God hate, but how can a holy God love a sinner? We should be scandalized, that, not that God hates Esau, but that God is willing to love some and save some. Well, as we come towards the end of unconditional election, we must remember that election, predestination, cannot save anyone. Election in itself does not save anyone. Election is the first step to salvation. Election and predestination do not save. We need the work of redemption. We need the work of redemption. We need a mediator to come and save us. And that's what leads to the next point as we come to limited atonement. We arrive now at the limited atonement. That's the third most crucial, most controversial and debatable of all the five points. I believe there is no point more debatable, more controversial than limited atonement. So here we come. You can see that it's right in the center of the tulip, right? It has its arms open, embracing the other four points. Here we reach the top of Mount Calvary, where our Savior bled and died for His people. It concerns for those for whom those Christ died for. And this truth stands at the very heart of the five doctrines of grace. It's the centerpiece that holds the other ones together. And I'm just not going to let you know that we are going to camp here for a while. 
have a few Sundays to study the atonement of Christ. I believe that's one of the most glorious subjects that we can ever study. The death of Christ for His people. It's this doctrine here that caused many Christians to say that they're four-pointer Calvinists. Have you ever heard about four-pointer? Yeah. Usually the four-pointer are the ones who reject the the L, the limited atonement. It's interesting because in my journey to the doctrines of grace, I did not have a problem with the L. My problem was with the first two points, total depravity and unconditional election. First was a child of our culture where you have free will, I have free will, I have free will. And the second misunderstanding was that God would be cruel in just choosing some. I did not have a problem with limited. My problem was the first two. Once the Lord opened my eyes to understand the depravity of my sin and His majestic mercy, the L, limited atonement, became a logical, wonderful consequence of the first two points. And we can basically divide Christians in two camps based on the answer to these questions. Here you go. Here are the questions that will divide Christians into two camps. Are you ready? For whom did Jesus die? Did Jesus die for some men or for all men? Did Jesus pay for the sins of all men or for the sins of some men? Did Jesus try and attempt to save all men or he accomplished the salvation of some men? What did Jesus actually accomplish on the cross? Did Jesus sprinkle his blood on all men indiscriminately? Or did he shed his, blood, his precious blood for the elect of the Father alone? We in this church believe that Christ died a victorious, powerful death for his elect. My Savior, our Savior, did not die for people who are in hell. He did not shed his blood for people who are in hell. He told that he would not lose any. I will lose none that you have given me. And what I want to do this morning as the remaining of the time is to work at an aspect of this doctrine that's often overlooked. And that is the Trinitarian aspect of redemption. The Trinitarian aspect of redemption. As I said, the doctrine of limited atonement is not simply marvelous, glorious, and comfortable, but it's logical and reasonable. What I'm going to do is not to put some text. You see, what you, people usually do is to get the text that says world, all, every, and they throw against the some, the church. I'm not going to do that. At least not right now. I will, I will cover the word world later. But what I think we need to do is to have the whole context of the Bible. The whole context of the Bible will help us understand this doctrine. And not only we're going to walk through the whole Bible, but also the doctrine of God. The doctrine of God. The most fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith is the doctrine of the Trinity. No one can be saved if they don't believe that our God is three in one. No one will be saved with a false idea of who God is. The most fundamental and most important doctrine is the doctrine of the Trinity. There is no Christianity apart from the Trinity. We have one God in three persons, one true and living God who subsists in three co-equal, co-substantial, and co-eternal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. There is no Christianity apart from God, and there is no God apart from the triune God. So even the Jews, they do not worship the true God. They are idolatrous. The true God is a triune God. And that's what they say about Christianity. It's blasphemy. To say that Jesus is God, that's a blasphemy. To say that the Holy Spirit is God, that's blasphemy. That's the most fundamental, important doctrine that we have. The Trinity. The heartbeat of the Christian faith is the Trinity and the doctrine of limited atonement declares the glorious work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in unity. In unity. 
One example, there are many texts, but just one so you can see is Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6. And here you see the Trinitarian God working the redemption of his people. But when the fullness of time had come, God, referring to God the Father, sent forth his Son, Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent whom? The Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Salvation is a Trinitarian work. The Father is described as the one who chooses a people to give to the Son. The Son comes and accomplishes accomplishes the salvation of those for whom the Father chose by living, dying, and being raised for His chosen people. And the Spirit applies the work of redemption. So you think about the designer, because the extent, the extent of salvation, for whom did Jesus die? The extent of salvation is inseparable from the design of the salvation. How was salvation designed? And then you think about the design of salvation, you've got to think about the designer. Who is the designer of salvation? The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The designer for our salvation is the triune God. And because the three persons of the Trinity are perfectly united in essence and in all their perfections, the Father, Son, and the Spirit must be perfectly united in the work of salvation. And here's the problem that we have. Some people have a divided Trinity. As if the Father chose some, Jesus came and died for everyone, and suddenly you have the Holy Spirit trying to woo whoever will suddenly accept the gospel. You have a broken trinity. And even those, think about those people who say, the Father chose those who chose Him first. Right? That's how most Christians in America understand predestination and election. As if God elected those who first chose Him. God saw in the tunnel of time those who... But even if you hold to that position, that the Father chose those who choose Jesus, And then you say that Jesus came and died for everyone. We have a problem here. We are breaking the Trinity. So the father has a group. And suddenly the son comes and died for everyone. As if the father is not that loving. So the son has to be more loving than the father. Because the father didn't choose choose everyone. It's very clear. that There is no way out that the father did not choose everyone. Amen? Is everyone elected? Then you come to universalism, where everybody will be saved. So somehow, even if you don't hold to unconditional election, you're going to be in a bad situation. If you say that Jesus came and died for everyone. And as we shall see, there is another problem. Because the death of Christ was a victorious, powerful death. And if he died for everyone, then everyone will be saved. The persons of the Trinity are distinguishable, but never divisible. He is undivided. That's why we talk about the simplicity of God. God is one. Father, Son, and Spirit. Thus, the election of the Father, the atonement and redemption of the Son, and the regeneration of the Spirit must have the same extent. They are working together. You cannot have the Father choosing some, the Son dying for another group, and then the Spirit just... Going insane. Oh, who should I, who should I, who can I regenerate now? The father chose some, the son died for another group, and now I'm here. Imagine the Holy Spirit in this equation. The extension of the father's election is the same as the extension of the son's atoning death, and is the same as the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration. So the Trinity orchestrates the symphony of salvation in all its movements. The Father elects and sends the Son. The Son comes. He's incarnate. He dies. And the Spirit draws and vivifies those whom the Father chose and the Son died for. So in John chapter 6, for example, if you're taking notes or if you want to open there, chapter 6 of John verses 37 and 39, Jesus says that He came to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father here doesn't mean 
what time he would get up and what he would eat for lunch. The will of the Father here refers to the will of salvation. He came to do the will of the Father in relation to salvation, and he will not lose any one of the elect of the Father. He will not lose anyone. Now, if you believe that Jesus died for people who were in hell, he lost some. In John chapter 10, Jesus tells the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they do, they, they do not belong to his flock. Do you remember? He says, You do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. You do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. That's to my flock. That's very fascinating because to belong precedes belief. Only those who belong will believe. Hmm. And then he says that he's not dying for them, for his enemies. He will die for his sheep. Jesus does not die for goats. He will die for his sheep. He dies for his friends. He lays down his life for his friends, not for his enemies. And then turn with me to John chapter 17. That's where we started this morning. John chapter 17. Verse 2. And he's referring to himself in the third person as the Son of Man. He says, you, Father, have given him, the Son of Man, authority over all flesh. And look at that. To give eternal life to whom? To all flesh? To all whom you have given him. That's fascinating. He has authority over all flesh, but he only gives eternal life to whom? To the elect of the Father. Huh. He has authority over all flesh, but he doesn't give eternal life to all flesh. He gives only to those whom the Father has chosen. Meaning, if he doesn't give eternal life to all flesh, it means that he did not die for all flesh. And then, still in chapter 17... Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. See, there is a group of people for whom Christ is dying. And these people are out of the world. So that will cause us to interpret again those texts that says, For God so loved the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That must cause us to reinterpret those passages. And in verse 9, John 17, verse 9, he says, I'm praying for them. Who is the them here? The, yes, the elect of the Father. I'm praying for them. Look at that. I'm not praying for whom? The world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Father and Son work in harmony, working in unity. Jesus keeps repeating that. I'm saving the ones you gave me. I'm dying for those you gave me. I'm not praying for everyone. I'm praying for the ones you have given me. And you cannot separate the death and the intercessory ministry of Jesus. Both the intercession and the death are part of his what? Priestly ministry. And if he's not praying for a group of people, will he die for that group? If he's not willing to pray for them, will he die for them? See, the greater here. No, he didn't die, and that's why he's not praying, because he's not their mediator, their intercessor. So, David Gibson, Jonathan Gibson, wonderful book. From Heaven He Came and Sought Her. Highly recommend this book. From Heaven He Came and Sought Her. There are essays in the Limited Atonement. 
He says, atonement, which radiate, radiates, radiates from the union of Christ with his people, and which is set within the wider paradigm of the triune operations, cannot but give assurance to the believer. If God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, has worked indivisibly for us in Christ, who then can be against us? Models of atonement that make salvation merely possible fail to provide this robust assurance and comfort. Who can be against us if Father, Son, and Spirit are for us? Amen? Why so much fear? Why have you been fearing so much? Why so much anxiety in your heart? If Father, Son, and Spirit are for you, who can be against you? And it's this understanding of limited atonement that the triune God working together to bring salvation of sinners. It's this doctrine that literally push missionaries, martyrs to die for Christ. If Father, Son, and Spirit have loved me so much, who am I to withhold love from them? And then you might say, these are just abstract, irrelevant, intellectual, theological questions of little importance. That's how some people see, talk about the atonement of Jesus, for whom Jesus died. That's for the scholars in seminary. Just want to remind you that every doctrine, the aim of every doctrinal map is to lead us to the glory of God. Every doctrinal, doctrinal map is to guide us to the glory of God. So when we talk about Jesus and what he accomplished, when we talk about Christ's death, when we talk about Jesus' work of salvation, we are dealing with the glory of God. And we will either rob God of his glory or we will give him the glory that he deserves in salvation. And whatever teaching that you hold that says that Jesus died for everyone, that made salvation possible for everyone, but actually did not save anyone, that Jesus somehow is contradicting the Father's will. It's very poor and robs God of His glory. These doctrines here that we are studying, they magnify the triune God, especially limited atonement. And you're going to see more when it comes to irresistible grace, the work of the Holy Spirit. The extent and intent of Christ's death is the climax of the glory of God's grace, which is the apex of the glory of God. So the death of Christ, think about the death of Christ, is the climax of God's glory. Where do we see the glory of God? Oh yes, creation declares the glory of God, but nowhere else as in the Father, Son, and the Spirit working to redeem rebels. For himself. And if the death of Christ, the climax of the glory of God's grace, that's the apex of God's glory. So, as we're going to continue this series, and especially through limited atonement, we will see in this church that we hold to a Christ who is victorious. We preach a victorious Christ. We preach that Christ came and saved his people. His name shall be Jesus. Why? Because he might save his people? Because maybe he will save some? No, because he will save his people from their sins. We preach that Christ accomplished salvation for his people. We preach that Christ established the new covenant, providing forgiveness for his people. And we preach the good news. That's the gospel. What good news is that Jesus didn't accomplish anything? The good news is that Christ died for his people and he accomplished the great work. That's why on the cross, his last cry was, it's finished. It's accomplished. Salvation has been accomplished. The people are saved. So, the Jesus that we hold in this church is a victorious Jesus. He does not lose any. Amen? And he works perfect unity with the Trinity. And that's my goal as we continue expanding these wonderful doctrines to see how 
it's all over the Bible. We cannot just get one verse here, one verse there. The whole story of God's drama is that he chooses a specific people and that sacrifices for that specific people. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices were not for the Canaanites, the Jebusites, but for God's people. Father, we truly stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he would love us and die for us. We who were sinners condemned unclean apart from Christ. Lord, for those here who do not know you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them of their sins and cause them to run to Jesus. He is the true Savior. What people need the most is to experience the love of a true Savior. And I pray that those here whom you have chosen and have appointed the preaching as the means to save them, that they would run to you. Knowing that those who come to Christ, he will not cast out. What a Savior we have. What a God we have. Father, Son, and Spirit. What a majestic symphony. All glory be to you, O Lord. Humble us. I pray, Lord, that we would live this, live this place here humbled by your mercy. Deliver us from pride. Deliver us from arrogance. Those are doctrines of grace. Humiliate us, O Lord so that you may be magnified. Thank you so much for your kindness and your mercy and your grace. And we praise you that you are holy God. You're righteous in all your ways. Your judgments are true and right. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.